I'm Trudy Morgan Cole, and this is Shelf Esteem, the podcast where I talk to people about books. And this is the third installment in my summer series, where the person I talk to is my daughter, Emma Cole. And the books we talk about are two books we've read in the past month that we recommended to each other. And this month, we read two books, uh, very different, but both about young people struggling to make it in the big city, specifically in New York City. And although the books are very different and written in a very different time, uh, we also found some interesting crossovers and commonalities between them. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Let's get right to it. So we're here again with another episode of Book Swap! Book Swap! Book Swap! Where we swap the books. We swap the books. And uh, this week, Emma is going to be talking about uh, the book that I got her to read, which is uh, Emma Who Saved My Life by Wilton Barnhart. And I'm going to be talking about Yoke by Mary H.K. Choi, which is the book that Emma suggested that I read. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's jump in. Emma, you asked me to read Yoke. Yes. Um, what what was your experience with this book? So this is the third book of Choi's that I've read. Um, her other two, I think, are called Emergency Contact and Permanent Record. Permanent Record. It's okay. Emergency Contact and Permanent Record. Um, and I liked both of those books. I liked the second one better than the first. So I was very excited to get this third one. Um, and I just find her writing style so, like, because I, I believe it's from first-person point of view, and it's very internal monologue in a way that you want to like keep going yes like it flows really well i found it like quite the page turners i was going through but not even like in that anything really that exciting happens like it's not a thriller or anything but it was very um addictive to keep reading about these people and their messed up lives (laughs) and their story and all that yeah yeah well i you you, when you gave it to me i took it on a camping trip Mm -hmm. uh for one day of which it was cold and rainy and we had to stay in the tent which was not a hardship because we were glamping so we had to stay in the glamping tent it was very comfortable um so i ended up reading it in like a day and a half Mm -hmm. uh partly because i had a lot of time on my hands to read but also because like you i found it very addictive and a real page turner yeah Uh, and it is the story of two sisters whom I'm going to do my best not to get mixed up, yeah. even though their names are Jane and June. Yes. And that kind of, the similarity of their names and their interchangeability in that way is a very big theme of the novel. It is an extremely big theme of the yeah. novel. Uh, because the premise, I think, Jane is the viewpoint character. She is mm-hmm. the younger sister. Um, and it's worth noting also that those are not their names. They are Korean immigrants. Their real names are Ji Hyun and Ji Young. Yeah. Uh, so, which are also Again, still course, very similar, yeah, especially yeah. to an American ear, very similar. Uh, so they have these two very similar sounding names, but from Jane's perspective, they could not be more different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think she sees herself as kind of the screw up younger sister, yeah. uh, in college, but barely succeeding at that. I don't think we ever see her actually in college in yeah. the entire book. It's I don't like, think so. Mention that she's not going to class or it's like and then I went to class for a few days. Either way to or from or avoiding a class but rarely ever in a class Mm -hmm. uh, where she's studying design I think. Yeah Yeah. she's at some kind of fashion school. Yeah and uh, so she's feeling very drifty about her life and her career and she lives in and this is going to come up again Mm -hmm. an incredibly crappy New York apartment. Yeah horrible it's like a uh, it's like an illegal sublet of an illegal sublet there's no landlord it doesn't have an address she technically doesn't yeah she technically doesn't exist there yeah it doesn't exist there um she like yeah in like a legal sense doesn't exist there and then also in a practical sense shares this one bedroom with her 
ex boy guy guy that she has ex, hooked up with and shares an apartment ex with. horrible guy yeah. um and there's like jeremy right? yeah so jeremy and there's like one bedroom that has just a mattress on the floor no sheet or anything and then there's just like a couch in the living it's just horrible like no hot water like just bad it's a terrible living situation meanwhile the older sister june who is only three mm-hmm. years older is out of school working in I it's like say, stock broker yeah finance yeah. So some kind of new yorky thing yeah. doing really well for herself and uh, apparently has her life together yeah. and, and lives in a very non-horrible new yeah York like apartment. a perfectly reasonable condo or something yes, kind of yeah. like apartment building yeah that's, that's nice um and as the story unfolds i think it becomes clear that Jane is not wrong about how screwed up she is. Yeah. But June's life is not as flawless by any means as it appears to be either. Yeah, for sure. And I think uh, June is definitely, um, or Jane is the narrator. Yes, right? Jane's yeah. the narrator. Jane's the narrator. She is definitely suffering from like not really being able to imagine her sister complexly. And that yes. changes as they kind of get to like re-know each other almost or maybe even know each other for the first time yeah. kind of as as adults not living in their parents house yeah they're very locked into this older sister younger sister dynamic yeah, yeah. and in the course of this book yeah they do get to know each other more as people more mm-hmm. as human beings uh, which i think is is really great um also a, a very key point i think throughout a lot of the book is that apart from being just sort of generally young and screwed up uh jane is bulimic yeah and that uh that is Mm -hmm. is a definitely a recurring theme and i found even the way that that was talked about and explained was just because that could have just been like a part of her character and been something that she was dealing with but even the way it was kind of revealed was done so well yeah because like from like the first page you start to get like an inkling of it because i think there's a sentence yeah it was in like the first couple pages where she's in a restaurant and she goes to the bathroom and she says like i know like pretty much every public bathroom in new york yes and like yeah. that's like a fairly innocent thing to say on its own but combined with like the way she was acting at dinner and the way she talks about herself from like the first little bit without it being like hit over your head with it you're like oh she clearly has some kind of eating disorder yes um and uh and then it's talked about more throughout the book and then you know right at the end you get that um thing where she talks about like why she was kicked out of her old apartment do you remember that there was yes well because there was a big thing where she melted down like ate someone's birthday cake in one sitting and then i can't remember if this was something that like when they were living at home her sister found like plastic bags of vomit under her bed yeah so it's like this stuff that's not really like life-changing like this stuff has been there the whole time but then once the author finally like lays it out and says it for you it hits you really really hard yeah and you realize you realize how severe the problem actually yeah 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 Yeah. because you're you kind of almost like the character would you get kind of used to it the Mm -hmm. like horrible like um the way she talks about her body the way she compares herself to other people it just becomes like a feature of the narration yeah and then when she hits you with these really big events that she's clearly tried to forget but yet is still always thinking about you're right there with her yes yeah Mm -hmm. that was really really well done and also not in an exploitive way like no you know you sometimes hear critique of books and movies particularly books i think about young women with eating disorders and that's like the whole thing and but also that they describe it in such a way that it almost gives instructions for how to do it yes this, which this not does not at all it doesn't no. at all mm-hmm. it's you know it doesn't exploit it it doesn't you know dra- glorify it it mm-hmm. just is 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought that was really well done, really well handled. And like, again, um, I say again, because I'm still thinking back to my year of rest and relaxation. Yes, yeah. I started off this book not liking Jane very much mm-hmm. and thinking, you know, this girl is, is she's so many stereotypes of sort of uh, young and unhappy with herself and very materialistic and into, you know, brands and, and labels and that yes. kind of thing. And I would say it's one of those characters where... To you and I, the obvious answer is stop living in New York. <laughs> yes, that's obvious. You don't have to be there. And that's a huge issue, again, which I think we're going to talk about when we, when we talk about comparing these yes, two books. Yeah. Because these are two young women who came from Seoul, South Korea, yeah. with their family uh, to America when they were fairly young, grew up in San Antonio, Texas, and then both as young adults move to New York City to make it in New York. Yeah, and for Jane, that's definitely a... I did it again. Jane is the narrator. Yeah, Jane Yeah, Yeah, for Jane, that is, like, she lays it out. She's like, I have to prove myself. Like, she has... Even being miserable in New York, that is, like, proving some sort of tenacity and some, like, strength to herself. Yeah. So she would rather be miserable in New York and at least be sticking it out than to be comfortable somewhere else. Somewhere else, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, I feel like she would still be quite screwed up if she were in San Antonio. That's the thing. I feel like it's kind of a cop-out to say that New York is the only thing making me miserable. <laughs> it is not, no. Yeah. But it, she is trying to live this very New York lifestyle and not succeeding at it. No. Uh, and I... I, I she really grew on me as a character. You know, I yeah. was initially sort of like, oh my gosh, stop whining. But yeah. then as you find out more about what's going on with her and, and who she is, and I love the relationship between the sisters in this. Yeah, it is. Because another thing I love about this is that it's a YA book where, yeah, there is that kind of B-plot romance that she has mm-hmm. yes. going on kind of about her love life, but it is mainly about the connection between sisters. Yes. Which... Familial bonds are something that are often, or at least in the past, have been overlooked in YA because they're usually seen as like a hindrance to the romance plot, you know? Um, But this book being about sisters was kind of what really made me want to read it, aside from it being by Mary Choi. Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how spoilery we want to get with this. I don't feel at all bad about being spoilery about the other book we're going to talk about because it's quite an old one. This is a relatively new release, Mm -hmm. and... Of course, some people listening to this might want to read either book. Uh, But I think we do have to talk about the big plot point, even though it is a reveal. Yeah. uh, Which is that Jane finds out that June is uh, is sick, that she has cancer, Mm -hmm. and that it could be quite serious. Yeah. Um, And even that is, like, revealed in a very casual way. Like, I think it's not, like, an emotional... Well, it is an emotional scene, but it's not, like tender they all no. i think it like is revealed while they're like basically having an argument yeah. essentially and then continue to bicker through yeah and it. jane's reaction is you know there, there's empathy there but there's also a lot there's resentment like you know how dare yeah. she go go and have, have how cancer? dare she go and have cancer yeah um and uh something else that is really integral to the whole theme of this book is that um when we first meet jane she's been using her older sister's id um, to, like, uh, get into bars and stuff yes, since, yeah. since she came to New York, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, she stole it out of June's wallet, Yeah, right? stole yeah. it out of June's wallet, which is, like, yeah, how she's been l- trying to live this lifestyle yeah. while, you know, getting into bars and clubs and stuff. Um, and, yeah, has because people can't tell the difference between her and her sister on yeah, the, on the ID. two young Korean girls. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then we find out that June has been fraudulently using Jane's identity to get insurance to cover her like medical bills and her and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, because, because 
Because, Jane's in school. Because Jane's in school, so she has uh, better insurance than what June's situation actually is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that, yeah. What were you going to say about how that ties I was just, the Yeah, whole just theme. that whole, like, muddling of their identities. Mm-hmm. And what this really gets at, I think, is how when you grow up with a sibling, especially like them, a sibling of the same gender, you're very close in age, you almost grow up... Um, Equally, as much as you know who you are, you know who you're not because of the offset with your siblings. Like, they're always the bench post for what ways are you like them and what ways are you not like them. So your identities are kind of intertwined like that. If you grow up in the same house as someone who's, like, close in age to you, especially, like, sisters or especially brothers, you really cannot separate yourself from, from each other. So then they go to New York definitely in separate directions but they still end up in the same city and in a way are still borrowing each other's lives yes um, and borrowing each other's identities even while they try to be estranged from each other they're supposedly living completely separate lives and yet each of them is literally intertwined yeah yeah yeah. Uh, i by the way i found that that uh stealing the sister's identity for insurance subplot or plot i guess incredibly stressful because first of all for any canadian reading anything about an american going through the medical system it's already brutal it's so stressful the idea that you'd have to steal someone else's identity just so you'd have uh insurance and then how are they ever going to untangle themselves from this that's what i found really interesting was that this book almost in a way doesn't really resolve itself it It does not no it leaves so much um up to there is more story beyond this. This is not a concrete, complete story. This is a window into these people's lives that will be entwined for the rest of their lives no matter what they do. Yeah. Because the realization when they got to the end of it was that, again, spoilers, June had to have her uterus taken out. Mm -hmm. And kind of towards the end, one of the subtle big revelations is that, well, if Jane wants to have kids she would legally have to do it as June because it would show up on her medical records that she doesn't have a uterus. Yes, yeah. So, like, if they, you know, if either of them, you know, grows up, wants to have kids, their lives will be so swapped and intertwined and messed about for the the rest of time. That's what really stressed me was not just the emotional, but, like, the legal ramifications. Yeah. Are they going to have to be dealing with this insurance fraud for the rest of their lives? Like, yeah, yeah. basically. So we have spoiled one major large plot thread, but there's yeah. a lot more in there's this book. There's a lot going, because, again, on. it's these... And it, they feel like such rich lives yes. that are actually happening, have actually happened, and will continue to happen after the book ends. Yes. And that's what I really liked about her writing was that it didn't feel like it was trying to set anything up. Mm-hmm. It just felt like it was all happening and you were just trying to race through it and like yes. consume it as quickly as you yeah, can. Yeah, and you're just getting... If probably the whole book takes place over the span of a few months. Yeah, yeah. And it does have that feeling of this is just a window into their lives. Yeah. What did you think about the romance subplot in it? I thought you were supposed to actually supposed to be grilling me okay. about this book, but that's okay. <laughs> what did you think of the romance <laughs> no, subplot? No, I asked you first. Okay. Um, I thought it was... It was I, I liked it because it was helping develop um, Jane's character mm-hmm. and I think that that really made her a bit of a more likable character when she got into kind of what her dating habits had been in the past and how that was tied to her identity as a woman and as a Korean American and it was it was nice to see, it kind of gave her that moment to see herself through someone else's eyes mm-hmm. when she was getting serious with was that guy's name Peter that she knew from Patrick Patrick um, that she knew from back home so mm-hmm. you know she uh, was able to examine, you know, what people might have thought of her in high school and how she might appear to people now and kind of give her a chance to grow a little bit. I thought the romance plot was definitely more for character development than for plot. It definitely yeah. was for character development, and I think it's one of the things, like, 
unlike the narrator of My Year of Rest and Relaxation, Jane really does show some character growth throughout yeah. this. I think she is, you know, she she is moving from some very unhealthy sexual and yeah. dating relations into one that might at least have the potential. To yeah, be, and, to be and even that, of course, has some ups and downs. Yeah, it keeps, you, keeps yes. you in suspense a yeah. little bit, makes you a little bit angry at times. <laughs> For but, sure. But yeah, it, it does give the sense that she is growing as a person. And that by the end of it, she is even dealing with the eating disorder and, and yeah. you know, some of her more personal issues. So uh, yeah, it, it, I thought it was a great story. I loved both the characters and, and a lot of the ancillary characters. Not Jeremy. I hated no, Jeremy. No, Jeremy's the worst. Uh, but I liked, uh, I liked Pat. I love their parents when they... Oh, and that's the... It's also, it's like, they were such complex characters. And then also, their parents are such complex yes, characters. Yeah. And, and you, everybody's a real person. Yeah, you barely get to know the parents, but, but what they are of them is, yeah, yeah they feel the like real people. From the few flashbacks you get and then the one trip that they take back home, you get so much backstory and such a picture of what this mother and father's life was like, uprooting themselves, moving themselves to America dealing with, you know, raising these their Korean family in Texas and like oh like just a story about their family growing up would be an amazing story in and of itself and it was it yeah it it was beautiful it was beautifully done and even a um uh, in, in the sense when they go back home that little bit of time they're in San Antonio and also in some of their conversations with each other mm-hmm. and Jane's conversations with Patrick that sense of their community like they attend this Korean Catholic yeah. church and you they're there for like I think when they go back home they're there for like a church potluck dinner yeah, or yeah. A meal, and you really get the sense of this immigrant community and how they're all in, their lives are intertwined with each other, and mm-hmm. I just loved that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I think makes this great, there's many reasons that this book is great, is because it's kind of a continuation of the classic immigrant struggle coming to America story. Mm-hmm. Like, the parents were the ones who, um, you know, had very strong memories. They grew up in another country, came here, had their kids. Like, that story has been told a lot, mm-hmm. right? Both in fiction and in, like, nonfiction. We see it a lot. But then those kids, you know growing up and still being immigrants but being american and it's yeah it was kind of a a continuation of that narrative in a very thoughtful and complex way yeah i thought it was great Mm -hmm. so let's turn to the book that i asked you to read yes emma who saved my life by wilton barnhart Mm -hmm. which came out in 1989 when i was 24 okay. and i'm pretty sure i read it that year i was probably 23 when it came out and i read it uh i was obsessed with this book when i was 23 24 and for the next couple of years mm-hmm. and uh i think we should get out of the way first of all that i did not name you emma after emma Gennaro. allegedly <laughs> allegedly but i think the fact that this book and, of course, Jane Austen's Emma mm-hmm. had the name in my mind. And you were born just at that cusp time when all these old-fashioned names were making And I was back. born a year before the baby before from Friends the baby was on named Friends. Emma. But there were a lot of, like in your age cohorts, a lot of Emmas and Emilys and Olivias and Amys. Yeah, and names that, yeah, yeah, names that you hadn't heard for at least 50 years. Mm-hmm. So Emma was very much in the forefront. And it probably was at least partly because of this because... As you could tell if this was video and not audio, uh, my copy of this book so worn the the you can the spine is so sun bleached you can barely read the title. I have read this book so many times. There are parts. It's probably one of the two books I've read the most. Maybe three books I've reread the most in my whole life. What are the other ones? Uh, Gaudy Night by Dorothy L. Sayers is number one. I'd say this is number two for numbers of readings, and probably the last convertible by Anton Myra. Mm. Um, 
are just books that I've read so much that there are whole passages I could probably, if you started, I could go on and finish. Yeah. So this was kind of, you know, it's kind of risky for me because I'm giving you a book that I loved when I was about mm-hmm. your age. Uh, but I was really interested to know how it would read to a person in their early 20s today. So, yeah, I mean... Uh, a lot of the things stand out about it, you know, being a historical fiction. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, the book starts in 1974 and ends in 1984, so I think it's dubious, but I'm going to call it 40 years ago. <laughs> well, I guess the 74 is almost 50 years yeah! ago, so yeah. That would be like you reading a book set in the 20s, in the 70s. Yeah, I guess so. Historical fiction. Okay. <laughs> um, but it wasn't, it was written yeah, yeah, it was know, shortly after the time. Yeah, yeah, I'm just yeah. using you. Um, Yeah, I thought um, it definitely feels pretty dated, Uh Um, especially, you know, a lot of the things being like, nobody has a cell phone. Like, one of the things that made me so stressed was every time people moved... And they would be like, oh, we'll see you later. And I was like, how do you know? How will you get in contact with any of these people? Because especially when people move out of the city or whatever. And then if you move, you don't know. Nobody no. knows where anybody is. There's no is. cell phones. There's no social media. Like, like, people are saying to each other, oh, we'll keep in touch. But it's either long distance like, phone calls. And they're like, I'll write you letters. It's like, what if their address changes and they didn't tell you? Yeah. You could literally just have, like, best friends. And then, like, they move and you never see them again. You definitely could. Ever. Yeah. Um, I, uh, we should do a brief plot recap. So, yeah, Sorry, before, way, I get into before, I get into, yeah. before I get into Emma talks about how old things are. <laughs> uh, so brief plot recap. This is also a first person, yes. young person this making like it a, in New York. Like narrative. a fake memoir. Though, it's like a fake memoir. Yes. Yes. It's written as though he were writing his memoirs. Mm-hmm. And it's about a young college age guy named Gil Freeman who drops out of college to move to New York and make it as an actor and moves in with a girl that he already has a crush on from college, Lisa, and her friend Emma. And they have an apartment together, and Gil quickly stops being in love with Lisa, falls in love with Emma, and for the next 10 Ten years, their friendship unfolds while he tries to make it in New York as an actor. Yeah. Again, this is a book that, um, more overtly than Yoke, uh, senses that it is bigger than just the story that you see. Even though it covers 10 years, mm-hmm. it's written five years after the fact yeah. as a memoir. And, you know, everyone, uh, Gil goes on to to live his life after that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does sense that, you know, there's there's stuff beyond this. But what happened in New York was the most important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, I, I did like it. I will say that. I really did like it. Um, but, yeah, some of the stuff that was just so so 70s and 80s about it in terms of no one having phones no one knowing where anyone was it's just <laughs> i found it stressful but in a way it's kind of even though i wasn't there kind of nostalgic uh-huh. that everyone kind of lived i mean this is going to sound so cliche but like lived more in the moment like really really kind of because you had no other choice had no other choice we, our moments used to just come to us one at a time and we had to live in them yeah yeah um uh yeah what else what else did what did, what did you think about it when you first read it like you said you loved this book. i Why loved did this you book love when i first so read it much? so i read it along with two of my best friends um at the time we used to read a lot of the same books my friends jamie and kathy mm. uh kathy and i both adored it jamie was like yeah i like it but not as much as you guys liked it uh but i was obsessed with i found it very 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 funny and yeah. there are still parts of it that i find incredibly funny I it love is very funny gill's internal monologue and he does something um no, no I, I was just pointing at you as you say this because i hope it's the same thing I it think. may not be um 
I normally have an issue with writers who leave out quotation marks. Exactly. Uh, but in this book, he does an interesting thing. Mm -hmm. Everybody else's dialogue is in quotation marks. But his is not. Anything that Gil says is not in quotation marks. So you sometimes can't tell... Does he say this out loud or does he just think does it? Does he just think it? Yeah. And and often he'll tell you, he'll say something and then, you know, somebody will say something and he'll say, well, that's what you think, you self-absorbed bag of shit. And then, yeah. I didn't say this out loud, by the way. Yeah. Um, and I guess that is just, yeah, again, just being uber from Gil's point of view. And You're it is, so in his head. Yeah, yeah, it is so much in his head that it's almost, it doesn't really matter to him whether he said these things or whether he didn't yeah. because it's in his head either way. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I found him a very funny, very witty narrator. There's so much stuff in there. Uh, well, I mean, uh, okay, I was going to ask you, as a theater person, as yes. a person who worked backstage yeah. in the theater, how do you like his depictions of trying to make it in New York theater? Well, I've I've never, uh, well, first of all, I'm not an actor. No, you're not And an also, actor. I've never done, like, professional theater. Like, right. I've done theater in school. school theater. Um, but from what I can tell, you know, it hit all the right tropes. It was very funny. You were rooting for him, but you saw how he kind of went through different stages of theater. It was, you know... Um, uh, there was something to critique about all of it. And by the time he kind of quote unquote makes it, he's yearning for the days when he was doing really shitty experimental theater in an off, 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 off Broadway thing. Um, I think very early on, he said something derogatory about techies and I was immediately turned off. <laughs> I was like, ah, um, but he yeah. also, so he does say nice few things about techies because he also says, oh, he says the techies. Prop he says props is the easiest job to do. Oh, yes. I knew you would hate oh, that. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's when he's working in a theater hoping to be an actor, but is actually doing... I did just doing... rip off the back that's cover. Okay. It was no very close to coming no up. I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, he, but he says the techies can always tell when the show is going to bomb. Yes, and also, oh, I love the part where he talks about the way the techies can mess with the actor's props. If, like, an actor is really shitty to you, you take over... He has a whole list of, like, the ways you can mess up an actor on stage, one of them being, like taking away key props like if they're supposed to say like point at that lamp and say something about the lamp the lamp's not on stage that night <laughs> or if they have to pull out a picture and show it to somebody that the audience can't see replace it with something ridiculous yes yeah. yes it was i really appreciated that and again that was one of the funnier bits and yeah. it was really well done i think the the humor the humorous parts of it were very top-notch they were really really good mm -hmm. so yeah. were there parts of it that you thought were not so top-notch well you mentioned earlier about whether or not gill has any kind of character development yes yeah. and i hadn't really thought about that until you said that but i do see how like things happen to him and he's like more worn out as an actor mm -hmm. but even though it's so much from his point of view i don't know it maybe feels a little bit underdeveloped as a character mm. i'm not Really sure, though. He, I mean, he grows older. Like, it's, again, the like, book covers yeah, 10 he, years. Like, so time happens. Yeah, he's 19 him. when it starts. He's 29 when it ends. Yeah. Um, or maybe he's 20 and 30, but yeah. whatever. Um, he definitely changes, but, you know, is that what we would call character growth, or is it just time passes and he gets older? Yeah. Well, this is major spoilers, because this is, like, That's the last, okay. last, last thing that happens in the book is, like... At the beginning, you get he's, like, so obsessed with Emma, right? Yes. Like, he's so infatuated with her. Always talks about how he would, like, get with her at, like, the drop of a hat. And then he kind of goes stale on Emma a bit. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing is her, like, have sex with me so that I can maybe have a kid. And he's like, okay. Even though it's, like, the worst conditions is a horribly awkward. He's still, like... Almost no thought. Is I know, like, he still goes for it, even after 10 years yeah, of this relationship. Which, like, I thought when that happened, I was like, okay, clearly he's going to say, like, 
no, and they're going to have a bit of a heart-to-heart, but then it was more of a humorous, bumbling thing. It's the worst sex scene in the history of the world. And I do love that the build-up to, like, this 10-year friendship that he wishes was more is an absolutely disastrous sex scene. Yeah, so it was very funny, but then for that to set up, you kind of have to have Gil go back to where he started, which was, we'll sleep with Emma in any way, for any reason, at any time. Despite everything he has supposedly learned about himself and exactly. her Exactly. So again, very funny, very witty, but maybe at the detriment of what he is supposed to have learned the yes, whole time. Yes, I agree with that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so something we both thought of as a question we wanted to ask each other yes. was... Um, the trope of the manic pixie dream girl, mm-hmm. which was not a phrase that was in common vocabulary in 1989 when I first read this book, mm-hmm. but it the concept, the trope existed even if the phrase yes, did. Yeah. And my question is, is Emma Gennaro a manic pixie dream girl? So I think, okay, so I'll, I'm going to read you a little bit about what I looked up about Manic Pixie Dream Girl, and I'll tell you okay. what I think. So I just looked up the Wikipedia thing. It was coined in, like, around 2005 So that's why people weren't yeah. saying it maybe um, And the, just like the first paragraph says that the Manic Pixie Dream Girl exists solely in the fevered imaginations of a sensitive writer-director uh, to teach brooding, broodingly soulful young men to embrace life and its infinite mysteries and adventures. So I do... We do get the sense that Emma is a full and complex and not always great character. Mm-hmm. Like, she has her, like, very strange, wacko political things that she says sometimes. She's not always the best to be around. She's very um, temperamental, very up and down, like the whole thing with uh, pills and how she's always very um, uh, uh, down on herself as a writer. Like, you do get a sense that she's not a pleasant person all the time. Right, yeah. Yet the narrator is still kind of unconditionally infatuated with her. That kind of dips down a little bit, but then again, towards the end, it seems like he's come around again. Yeah. And so I'd say for the beginning bit, like maybe the first two or three years, she definitely was feeling that manic pixie dream girl um, trope, mm-hmm. even though she was around permanently. She wasn't just dropping in and out of his life. Right, but she was um, still that sort of magical, quality item girl. Or whatever yes. it is. Yeah, the quality item that yeah. he calls her or something. Um, and then they kind of got out of that. You know, Gil kind of came to his senses a little bit after some distance with Emma, um, and it seemed like he kind of saw her as, like, a person. But then again, I feel like in, like, the last couple of pages where he's talking about how kind of this whole book has been about Emma and it's mm-hmm. kind of to Emma, wherever she is now. And he says something about how, like, she taught him to, like, embrace life and how he would have been miserable without her in New York, which I think comes back to the Manic Pixie Dream Girl of him seeing her as a vehicle for something in his life. Yes, like, yeah. she taught him how to do this. She showed him how to do this. Rather than them being in life together, she was there to help him out yeah. functionally. Yeah, yeah, which is that trope, I think. I think she's definitely a manic pixie dream girl at yeah. the beginning. Yeah. Um, and I think what I, one of the reasons I like this book, even though I'm not sure Gil gets it, mm-hmm. I think the re, I think Gil does get it off and on, but I'm not sure. As you say, yeah. there's, there's it, points it, at the end where he's still starstruck It's, it's by like her. in the Paper Towns movie, where it spends the whole time leading up to you realizing Margot is not supposed to be a manic pixie dream girl. She doesn't have her yeah. life together. She's not just there to exist for the narrator. And then right at the end, he's like, I hope she's off having brilliant adventures somewhere. And you're like, that was... I, That's not the point. antithetical to the whole thing. Well, Paper Towns is a really interesting comparison here because, mm-hmm. although much later, of course, John Green wrote Paper Towns largely to undermine the myth of the manic pixie yes, dream girl. and then girl. the movie screwed it up yeah. in like the last two minutes, but whatever. <laughs> and, but to say, you know, that she is actually a complex person with her own problems. Yeah. And by the time I, as an adult, read the young adult paper towns, 
I already knew that, not only because I had lived life, but because in a literary sense, I thought that's what Wilton Barnhart did in Emma Who Saved My yeah. Life, created the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, had his narrator character fall in love with her, and then spent 10 years of narrative showing us actually this is a very complex woman with a lot of problems, and she has her own life and her own stuff yeah. going on. But then what do you think about Gil not really getting it, even at the end? Like, is he just being nostalgic? I think he's just nostalgic he's just at simplifying the end. simplifying things? I, also, in Gil's mind, Emma and New York are so tied together. This is true. And the last, although I love this book and will love it till I die... The ending of it is the hokiest ending. That's the thing is this, and I think Paper Towns suffered from being very, very good about dismantling some of these tropes, mm -hmm. but then had had to tie quote unquote tie it up in some kind of way that they imagine a story has to end. Yes, like this feels very much someone doesn't know how to write how to end their memoir, so they go with the cheesiest thing possible. Yeah, because he's he's in he's back in Chicago. He's settled down. He's living his life, and he talks about uh, walking down uh, by the lakefront in Chicago and looking how beautiful it is. And I think that's nice. That's real nice. This is the older Gil now writing the memoir. Yeah. But I knew a place once where the lights were brighter. And the air was filled with dreams. I have a new theory. Do you know what I think it is? What? I think it's that. So when Gil first gets to New York, mm -hmm. he has these big dreams about what New York is. Yeah. He has these big dreams about Emma. Yeah. And then he has to unlearn that over a few tough years. As he deals with the reality of yeah. both New York and Emma. And then when he writes this book, he's five years separated from New York. His brain is reset. And <laughs> his nostalgia has made him forget all that. Even though he's just written, he just them, written, he just yeah. written about them. But it's like emotionally he's back where he was at the beginning. He's idealizing New York. He's idealizing, idealizing Emma. Exactly. Even though he's just written about how unideal both things were. Yeah, yeah, because he's been away from He hasn't been living it. He's been writing about it and thinking about it. But even the tough times are kind of romanticized a in bit, a way. Because yeah. um, he sees them as part of his New York journey. Kind of the same way in Yoke, um, uh, Jane sees it as like, the suffering is part of it, and the suffering is good in yes, a way. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, you have to suffer. Yeah, and they're, they're both with both in both books. There is this question of you know, do we have to be in New York doing this this terrible struggle? And in a way, I wish we had a ten year perspective on Yoke. Oh yeah, because I would like to know if Jane, in the end, makes the decision that Gil does that no, this city is too tough. I, I can't make it here. I'm going back yeah. to you know, in her case, San Antonio. Yeah. In his case, Chicago. Or even honestly, for Gil, what more happened is he did make it and he was on a right trajectory like he was on broadway yeah he and he, had, he with, finally had a yeah, decent apartment he finally had a decent apartment he was on broadway he had an agent that you know wasn't screwing him over all yeah. the time um and he probably could have kept doing that but it wore he found out that he wasn't the right it wasn't that new york wasn't right for him he wasn't right for new york yeah, exactly yeah. um so he made the decision to to leave yeah, yeah. and mm -hmm. to, to to go back to a different kind of life yeah one thing both these books do so well and i've already said it with yoke but i think it's true with them even though i mean they're they're said one thing they're set in a very different new york yeah because new york of the 70s and 80s much this is pre giuliani new york much trashier, mm -hmm. much dirtier, much more obvious out in the street. Like th these writing the time period when Times Square, instead of being filled with like big light up screens and brands, which is the only way you've ever seen yeah. it, was full of sex shops and uh, homeless people. Yeah. And so it's a very different time period. But my gosh, the crappy New York apartment comes is, across. Yeah. Um, Honestly, 
seems worse in Yoke. It is, but think about Gil's apartment, oh, uh, the one he lives in on Avenue A behind yeah. the Caribbean food store. Yeah, that, that was like because yeah, the, he had he and he had some pretty good apartments when he had roommates. They were yeah, when he had roommates, good, but yeah. when he had the place on his own, that is basically one room with a sink, a hot plate, and a mattress on the floor. Yeah, and it sounds revolting, horrible, and, I, I was, and also had to walk through a like a bodega to get yeah, there. Yeah, to get there, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I thought of that apartment and I thought of uh, Jane's apartment in Yoke. Mm-hmm. And I thought these are two books that really do not fall into that like friends on TV no, no, trope no. Of, of making New York apartments better than they really yeah, are. I think you can get away with glamorizing New York in TV and movies. People mm-hmm. just kind of gloss over it. But when you're writing about it, people can take yeah. more, uh, can be more honest about how mm-hmm. shitty everything is. Well, bo- both of these, I thought, were very good about the gritty side of being young and trying to, to make it as yeah, an artist of any kind. Yeah, these people really want to be in New York. They really do. They yeah. really do, because they feel like they... I think it's partly... Obviously, it's been so romanticized and so idealized, and also, you know, for certain... For certain professions, you well, do feel theater like and fashion are two yeah. professions. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's either there or L.A., right? Yeah. Those are the two things you think of as, I can only be here. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think it's also, uh, in the case of Yoke, someone who is a little bit miserable and wants to have a definite excuse for that. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you can have a sh- kind of shitty life and ignore it for a while because, you know, that's New York. Right? Yeah, yeah. I think there's definitely an element of that. Of course, the thing that Yoke does so much better uh, than Emma said, okay, I gotta backtrack to something you okay, said. Yeah. Uh, because you said this, do, Yoke does something well that a lot of YA doesn't. And I wanna stick a pin in that because yeah. remember we talked back when we talked about normal people, yeah. about how we define YA, and you said yeah. it stops when they leave high school. Yeah. So, but this was, the, you got you bought this in the YA section, yes, right? Yes, exactly. And the That's characters why... are what, like 19 and 22 or Yeah, and exactly. That's why I, I think YA is. Either YA is kind of turning around and, and aging up their characters a little bit, or I'm just finding more YA. That's yeah. I think I think the trend in YA that when when I talk about what YA is like, I'm talking about the years like 2012 to 2018, right? Because yeah. that's when I was really really reading YA like exclusively and a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of since university, I've taken a break from it and then been more selective in what I'm reading as right. well. Yeah. So whenever I talk about what YA is, that's the perspective that I'm coming yeah. from. But uh, like to me, both of these are just novels about people in their twenties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, you talked about how how well it explores the family relationships, and yeah. that's really the heart of it. And to me, the absence of family relationships in Emma, who saved my life, really stuck out, even yeah, when I first yeah, read it as a young person. And I was wondering if part of that is just like it is the thing where if your family's in Chicago and you move to New York, your contact with them is going to be very, very limited, right? Even more so back in the seventies and eighties when yes, your exactly, mom wasn't yeah. wasn't texting you five exactly. times a day. Exactly. If, if yeah. they can't call you and text you, like mm-hmm. genuinely, are you dead or alive? Like, <laughs> really not sure. Um, but I imagine there was still so like I know you kept in touch with. Your I, I mean, you were at I was I was reading this. The, the scene in it that stands out to me. I mean, so many scenes because I've read this book so often. Many yeah. of the scenes stand out. But when Senor Ruiz, who owns the the bodega, um, asks Gil about his family and says, you know, he's all his family in Chicago. Oh, you must miss them. You must miss them all the time, uh, because he has such as a Puerto Rican immigrant, yeah. he has such a strong sense of family. And Gil is like, you no. know, maybe at Christmas and Thanksgiving, but I really don't think about them. They're irrelevant to my life. And I was reading this as a 24 year old 
who was living in Ontario while my parents were in Newfoundland, and they were absolutely integral to my life. so unrealistic. Yeah, like, um, because kind of yoke goes to prove that, like, even if you disagree with this person, you don't like them, you still grew up with them. Exactly, You spent decades of your life with these people. For you to not think about them ever is, like, concerning. Yeah, concerning. concerning. Uh, And, I mean, Gil passes it off as we're a normal American family, and Senior Ruiz is like this because he's an immigrant. And, of course, the girls in Yoke are also immigrants, but I don't think that's a fair distinction that only immigrants feel a tie to their family (laughs) of origin. I think, you know, a lot of people do. A lot of people in their 20s, even if they're physically away from their parents, still are very emotionally involved with their family of origin. I think the only real reference we get to, like... uh, any connection anyone has to their parents and Emma saved my life is in like the last couple of years, Emma drops some hints about like her bad relationship with her dad. And then like the last chapter, I don't know, he has like cancer or something and yeah. they think it's going to be his last, his last birthday or his last Christmas or whatever. But it's really kind of shoehorned in there a little bit. Yeah, it really is. You don't find out of any of the characters. Yeah. You do not find out much yeah. about their families. And there is this sense that we're li- all living here as young in adults. In a bubble, yeah. In a bubble, yeah, yeah. Completely separated from home and family. Yeah, where Yoke was kind of like, as, try- as, as much as you would like to try, New York is not your own personal bubble. Your family follows you. Your identity follows you. Your illnesses follow you. You yes. can't, you cannot escape to New York. That It doesn't yeah. work like you bring, that. You bring all your baggage with you. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, huge plot point in Emma. Mm-hmm. Uh, Emma's not having sex for 10 years. Yeah, Emma, yeah. who is 22 or 23 when we first meet her, mm-hmm. decides she's celibate, announces to Gil that the first night they meet, that yeah. she has just begun to be celibate, which yeah. is a bad start well, again, from Gil's very funny. Yes. Very funny. Um, but it, it goes from being sort of a quirky thing that she yeah. does to a huge thing. And I remember, even the first time through, thinking there's going to be some reveal here, like that she yeah. was sexually abused at some point, she yeah. has been assaulted, she's had some traumatic experience, but there's that never never was, yeah. Which, like, is that weird writing, or does that point to, like, kind of pointing out your expectations of what a woman's journey has to be for her to not have sex, Well, the thing is, I think if it was being written today, if you were taking these same characters and they were in 2021 New York, could Emma just be asexual? Maybe, Could it just be like, because really a lot of it seems to come down to, she's not necessarily aromantic. She says she likes the idea of love, but she, she, and the she says, but the viscosity, viscosity, sex is all about viscosities and she can't handle viscosities. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, maybe if today, when I think your generation is much better about embracing various identities yeah. as well as sexual identities, maybe it could have been a non-issue. Yeah, and it's just, she's asexual, sex her, yeah. she's not into that and that's okay. And maybe yeah, we could all fine. accept that. Um, and, oh yeah, there's some speculation about whether, you know, all the lesbians trying to get her to reveal that she's a lesbian yeah. because one of her other friends from the celibacy club did yes, as yeah. a lesbian after that. Yeah. Oh, I did. One of my favorite set pieces in this book is the, the bicentennial 4th of July weekend in 1976 when they go to the beach house. That was the one where I think I was uh, I was hanging out with Sean, my boyfriend, and we were like trying to watch a movie or something and I was like uh, no, I have to finish this. This is too good. I was like, this is too funny. I gotta, I gotta, re- I want to see what happens this weekend. Yeah, because there's this whole misfit cast and crew of like Lisa and her very conservative boyfriend, and then all her these... boyfriend of like three weeks. Yes. by the way. And also, yeah, the whole the whole dating way that they had to do things back then, especially, it was just so funny to me. That in what way? Just that like. 
I mean, in three weeks, how many times could you have seen a person? Like, yeah, not yeah, that many. A few, but then to, yeah, and they're acting like a couple, like, going steady. Like, it's just, it, it, I think of any time before 1990, you would just look at a person and be like, we're dating now. And everyone would be <laughs> like, okay. And then you try it out for a little bit. Whereas I feel like now there's a lot more pre-planning and sorting out whether you would like a person and then you date whereas in this case because they didn't really have a way to sniff each other out or to like no dating apps no texting no dating each other no stalking each other yeah, and especially media. if you saw someone there was no like you had to jump on it right then you know because <laughs> you might never find you that might person never find them if you didn't give them your number give them your contact info right then made very clear your intentions you might never run into them again unless you're like jane and yoke because remember jane yes. sees jeremy on the street yeah. And then he randomly shows up months later in response to an ad for a, for a room. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but yeah, that's I, very random. Yeah, but I got a, a very big sense in, in Emma of that kind of, yeah. Just there. Because when they talked about her boyfriend, I was like, oh, it's been a few months. Like, no, they met three, three weeks, weeks ago. Yeah. But the whole beach house thing where there's this random cast of characters. And what it comes down to is every single person is plotting to sleep with Emma. Yes. Or at least considering the possibility of yes, sleeping for with Emma. Vastly different reasons. Vastly different reasons. And there's all these machinations going on. And I, that was, yeah, like I said, when the book is being funny and witty and complex like that, like the thing where Gil goes to the bar and tells Tom or whatever yeah, his name Tom. was, excuse me, when Gil goes to the bar and tells Tom that like, oh no, you can't sleep with Emma because she's a lesbian, and then it gets back to the lesbians that Emma's a lesbian. Like, it's... And one of them wants to invite Emma into a threesome <laughs> so, with them. And, so uh, convoluted. But then what so I good. love about that, and what, what, what I guess has always made this book so um, such an emotional punch for me, is uh, that that whole incredibly funny, hilarious speech thing ends with a little monologue that Gil does not deliver to Emma, but does in his head, mm -hmm. which is... If you had realized that every single person at this beach house on some level was either in love with or attracted yeah. to you, would it have done anything for your yawning uh, sense of inferiority? Yeah. You know, if you yeah. had realized how much people wanted you, would you have felt loved? Mm -hmm. So I thought that was it, it just does that thing of being hilarious and then undercutting it, you know, emotionally. Yeah, because you I think what you get is Emma obviously has a very, very low image of herself. Mm -hmm. As a writer, as a person, she just hates everything about her and is always yeah. moaning and has really low self-esteem. And then Gil sees her, puts her up on a pedestal to the highest extent, even if yeah. there's a little bit of a dip in that by the end of the book and at the beginning he's definitely putting him on a pedestal, seeing her in the absolute best light. And then you as a reader kind of get to find the middle ground, which is Emma is a person who has flaws and strengths and weaknesses and good things and bad things. Mm -hmm. So you kind of get these two extremes from the subject and from the narrator and get to kind of settle yourself into the median. As a book written by a man largely focusing on a woman in the 80s, does it feel sexist to you? I don't think so. I didn't, uh, again, if there was anything that was slightly dodgy, it was because it was very funny, yeah. which is, is I think there's fair. some things that read cringy to me now. There's a lot of fat phobia, especially when they make fun yeah. of Susan. Yeah. There's so many things to make fun of Susan about other yeah. than her size. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, he throws around the F word, faggot, yes, fair bit. Yeah. And there is quite a lot of, things. and, uh, of course, because it's the layers to this are they make fun of a character for being this way, but then also the narrator wrote them this way. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm talking about specifically when Lisa becomes like a housewife and they never see her again. It's a very Susan started liking boys so she couldn't go to Narnia anymore. Yeah, kind of yeah, thing. It's, yeah, like Lisa's. Uh, the, yeah, she's become normalized, I think, at one point. Yeah, yeah, which is like, grow up. <laughs> 
like, like hating your friend because she has a job and a family is yeah. like and and Lisa's so also like that's a very poignant scene their last scene with Lisa where yeah. she's left her husband she's being a single mom with the kid yeah and she wonders Gil and Emma are both separately planning to leave New York and trying to break yeah. it to her uh, and she's like she comes to the this this coffee date or lunch date or whatever they're planning, saying, "Do you think we could all get a place together again, like we did yeah. ten years ago?" Yeah. Well, I I think the the way it is revealed is that you know she they tell her that they're gonna leave, and then she's like, "Oh, I kind of had this like I didn't realize until that, but I had this like dream in my head that we would all live together again, yeah. like us and my kid." And it was like, "Oh, she still is as wistful and and um and as uh." Uh, yeah, nostalgic almost. As, yeah, she's kind yeah. of idealized that too, yeah. that time. And, you know, she, I don't think she's in love with either Gil or Emma, but she's in love with that time in her life yeah, when she was sure. young. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, two very different books, except they both have yellow covers. Oh, what were you going to say? Just one more thing. It, if it was a memoir written by Emma, how much do you think Gil would feature in the story? Oh, that's a really good question. <laughs> do you think Gil would be as big in Emma's memoir as <laughs> Emma is in Gil? Would it be Gil who saved my life if Emma was writing it? <laughs> yeah, like maybe She not. did live with him for a bit, but then there was a long period where... They were not living together. They were not interacting. And how much do you think she was thinking about him? Probably not to the extent that he was thinking about yeah. her, for sure. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't think she ever had the same obsession with Gil that Gil had with her. No. I think that's this is all about him being young, idealizing New York, idealizing a career in the theater. Living in I, this bubble. Yeah, yeah, and idealizing this woman who he has put up, like you say, on a pedestal. Mm-hmm. And in the end getting disillusioned with all those things and yet somehow still idealizing them. Yeah, yeah. But idealizing them in memory. Yeah, again, because he's been away long enough that his brain is reset and he's forgotten. (laughs) So, as I was going to say, two very different books about being young and making it in New York, both with yellow covers, Mm -hmm. both with characters in their 20s. Um, But written 40-ish years apart? 40-ish years apart. I think when I read Emma Who Saved My Life, you know, I, my path, my trajectory in life was already in many ways clear, and I knew I was not going to go live in New York and try to make it as a writer. But I have I have felt then and feel now that there's an alternate version of my life in which I did and could yeah. have done that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And probably would have hated it in some of the same ways, but maybe it's better that I've always just been able to idealize yeah, it. I yeah, yeah. You're young. Do you want to go live in New York no, and make it? No, I don't want It's so... It's so expensive, and the way, yeah, the way people idealize the struggle and, you know, brag about how hard their lives are. Just live somewhere else. <laughs> live somewhere where you Oh, also, I found all the amounts that everything cost in Emma Hussein. Oh, life. yeah. I now that, I mean, obviously realize, yes, this is 1976 The breakfast special for one ninety nine. Yeah, and the uh, the incredibly expensive apartment that was $400 yeah. a month. Yeah, <laughs> they're like, He's paying, do you hear? The neighbor has gentrified. They're paying $500 now. <laughs> but yeah, obviously that's 1990. Yeah, it's a, you know, pre-inflation. Yeah, no, I have never wanted to live in New York. I love to visit, love to visit New York, love to visit Toronto, love to visit London. Couldn't pay me to live there. Don't wouldn't want to live in a big city? No. Yeah. No, no. And I never have, but I have always, like I said, I felt there's an alternate life in which if a couple of different turnings had been taken. Mm. I could have done that. But 10 years on, I might have wound up just as disillusioned with it as Gil. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing is then, I mean, unless you stay there and kind of the whole point was that almost everyone leaves. Yes, and that is a point he says and towards the end. Yeah. He says, everyone that I started this New York journey with yeah. has gone. And then it's like, 
why did you suffer for all that time if you weren't even going to stay there? Is it worth it? Maybe it was because of the friends we made along the way. <laughs> Although he's not speaking to some of the friends he made exactly. along the way. So what was the, the point, one. Gil? What was the point? Well, the point is what he learned, I think. If there was a 10-year window on Yoke, where do you think Jane and June would be in 10 years? Oh, my gosh. Well, I don't know. I feel like over 10 years... They definitely would have had another falling out, almost kind of similar to Gil and Emma. Yes. Had a, I would have liked to see them falling out, maybe one of them moving away from New York for a while or maybe permanently. Yeah. And then, I don't know, probably something about their parents would have to bring them together again. And, and they would, in the way that siblings are, you are, uh, unlike Gil, um, yeah. you are always connected to your family. Yeah, even though Gil thinks yeah. you can be not connected to your family, you really yeah. can't. Yeah, or, yeah. Some people can. Also, they could have made him an only, he could have made him an only child, but he's like, no, he has a brother and a sister, but we're never going to name them. Yeah, his siblings are very shifting, because he mentions yeah. an older brother, he mentions a younger brother, yeah. and sometimes he just says, my brother, as though he has only one. Yeah. So yeah, it's, I don't, I just feel like Wilton Barnhart had Didn't created care. so many characters and so much rich setting, because I think yeah. the setting is beautifully done in yeah. this novel. I also um, um, but, he didn't give any any spa- brain space to Gil yeah. Stanley. By the end of Emma Save My Life, I wanted to see the return of Susan and where she was after 10 oh, years. Oh, I would love and to see Susan. Because we kept up with some of the other characters that we met halfway through, like Janet and Slutdoll. Janet and, and Mandy and Slutdoll. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mandy and Slutdoll. Um, but we didn't know where Susan was. Do you know what the saddest... Uh, f- not flash forward character of this is though hmm. it's his gay friend Kevin when he says Kevin left and went out to California hope he's okay what with AIDS and all it's like oh, oh well he may not statistically, statistically yes. Kevin mm. probably was not okay oh, not, and that's the thing it's like these people would just leave your life yeah and you would never know until exactly. maybe 10, 20, 30 years, you'd run into someone who happened to also know them. Yeah. And then you could maybe see where they were. It's, yeah. That's the way we all lived back and then, then. And then in, in uh, you really get in a sense of, in Yoke, that, like, I think June keeps tabs on Jane by looking at her location on her phone, That's right? That's right. She has location there... turned on her phone, so she always knows where Jane is. Yeah, yeah. Which is such a, yeah, 2020 story, 20 teens story. Yeah. Uh, compared to the just way people drift out of each other's lives exactly. in, in 1970s and 80s New York. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to make another book recommendation. This is not one you have to read for the okay. pod. But a book that, I was going to say pairs extremely well, but three things can't be a pair thruples extremely well with these two books and kind of bridges them um remember i recommended and you read uh red white and royal blue by casey mcquiston casey mcquiston's new book one last stop Mm -hmm. when i was reading it i was thinking constantly of emma who saved my life because it is about a group of friends sharing an apartment in new york young people in their early 20s but it is set in the present day Mm -hmm. Uh, but it also, because of a complicated time travel device that comes into it, because oh, okay. it has a very lightly paranormal element, it has a bunch of flashbacks to 1970s New York, mm. and particularly to 1970s New York uh, queer culture and specifically lesbian culture. Mm. And so I was thinking, you know, these these little bits of vignettes. Thinking of all the le- this, the the hearty supporting cast of lesbians <laughs> and Emma <laughs> yes, yes. really the foundation they of really this book are, so. is the background lesbians. I was thinking of Janet and Mandy and Susan and all the rest of them in uh, as I was reading that when I was thinking about the 1970s. All parts. the separatist lesbians. Yes, but I also thought. Uh, 
the the apartment setup of which is four young people sharing an apartment in um, one last stop, uh, very much like Gil, Emma, and Lisa's apartment of the gods yeah. at, at about the same time in life and also in New York. Uh, so as a growing up young in New York and. That one deals with actually both friendships and complicated family mm. relationships. So it's got it's, it's got, got it, it all. all. So yeah. If you want to read either of these two books, you definitely should. And if you want to read a third that I think uh bridges some of the gaps between the two of them in interesting ways, I highly recommend Casey McQuiston's One Last Stop. Yeah, I mean, Red, White, and Royal Blue was a fantastic page turner. So it was I will so much fun. It was such read. a funny, silly, what a ridiculous premise. It was romance. a romp. It was a fun romp. It was a fun and romp. I, it, was, it was just so full of stuff. Sean <laughs> kept saying it whenever I checked in with him. He was like, stuff's always happening in that book. <laughs> it is. It is. Multiple Good. events occur. Multiple events occur. Well, the premise of One Last Stop is that the girl whose name momentarily escapes me, the main character, uh, falls in love with a girl she meets on the subway, but it turns out this girl's been stuck on the subway since 1977. Ooh! And she can't get off the subway. She wow. can exist as a full rounded person, but only on this one particular subway line. Interesting. Uh, so, Is that yeah. a Manic Pixie Dream Girl? Uh, you know, I think she might be a bit the lesbian version of the Manic mm. Pixie Dream Girl in that she's serving this function for another girl, not for a boy. Yeah. But there's definitely elements of that there, yeah. Interesting. And her name is Jane, which ah, also connects it back again to Yoke. So, yeah, I just love books about people being young in New York. Yeah. I, don't I, if... I wouldn't want to be one. I'd love to read about them. <laughs> I, think, I think there's a part of me that would have wanted to be one, and that's why I love to read about them. Mm. Anyway, this has been a fabulous reading yes, journey. it's been great. It's been great. So before we finish today, Emma, mm -hmm. um, I want to talk a little bit, not about either of these books, uh, but about... Salt Pages, which is your uh, new project. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, sure. So Salt Pages, as I said, is a new uh, nonprofit bookseller. We're based out of St. John's, very, very local. Um, we have books by local artists or local writers, by Canadian writers. Um, we feature a lot of progressive and alternative literature, um, and we deliver within the St. John's metro area. So if you are there and want to get some cool books, if you want to support local businesses and support um, local authors, uh, you can... Uh, hit us up and we'll give you some books. <laughs> so how do people find out about Salt Pages and like what books you're offering and go, how do they find you and go about ordering a book from you? Yeah, so we do it all through social media. You can uh, get us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. You can send us an email um, and that's at saltpagesnl at everything. Salt Pages NL at everything yes. on all the social media. Every single one. <laughs> it is so exciting to me that you have grown up to not only love books and write, but also to want to sell books. Well, and yes, books. of course. I grew up always surrounded by books in every sense, so I think it's a natural progression. <laughs> to want to dis disseminate them to as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. well, I think it is a great yeah. project. It's been really exciting watching you grow this. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, people need to just check out Salt Pages NL. Yeah. Salt Pages NL. L. And uh, I'll also put a link to that. As always, as I always do with the podcasts, um, if you go to my website, trudymorgancole.com, and click on the shelf esteem link, it'll take you to a blog post where we'll list all the books and things that we talked about. And I'll also put a link to Salt Pages at L so you can find out more about it. Yes, I hope people check it out. You can buy and borrow books from us anytime. Okay. Thank you for discussing these two books with me. Thank you for having me. Maybe if we have time before summer's over, we we'll might be back with another episode. Try to get in another one, if yeah. not, maybe we'll do one at Christmas. Yeah. Uh, but I love book swapping with you, and it's been a great time. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thanks.
That wraps up our third book swap episode for our summer 2021 series. As I said, uh, Emma and I both said, we're not sure if we're going to have time to do another one before she goes back to university. There might be one more in August, or I might be bringing you uh, another episode with another guest in September. But we're not stopping book swap. Even if we have to wait till she comes home for Christmas, we're definitely going to do this again because this has been such a great series. So be sure to check out the blog where you can uh, see a list of what we talked about links to all the books we discussed and anything else that came up in the conversation as well as uh, Emma's independent bookstore salt pages and until we're back with the next episode whatever that might be read a good book and build your shelf esteem